Well, open in your Bibles to Genesis 18. Genesis chapter 18. So we are exiting a dinner party that Abraham is having with his three guests, the Lord, and two angels, right? You guys remember we've been looking at that story together where Abraham rushes out to meet the, his guests. He prepares for them a, a meal, and then God has this little interaction with Sarah, and he tells her that, that he can do anything, nothing's too hard for him, and then the story sort of ends in a weird kind of way where it's God going, no, Sarah, you did laugh. And then there's this transition that takes place. And this morning, we're going to jump into that transition in verse 16. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses here this morning. Because these first verses, verses 16 through 19, set the stage for the rest of chapter 18 and all of chapter 19. In other words, what I'm going to read in a minute tells us why the rest of 18 and all of 19 exists, what it's there for, what we're supposed to be looking for when we read those chapters. So this morning is going to be, I, I'm going to say, probably more, probably different than usual in that we've got to cover a lot of material in order to, I think, be faithful to what God wants us to see in this passage. Usually we read little bits and we really dig in. In this case, God tells us what he's doing, and in order to understand it, we've got to read all the way through the end of 19. So we're going to Read a little, I'm going to talk a little, read a little, preach a little, read a little. So there's going to be different people reading throughout the morning so we can get through this, these sections together in a way that I think honors how God, why God wrote it the way he did. Does that make sense? So we've got to jump in this morning and do this. Let me show you what I'm talking about and see if you can see what I see, and then I'll explain it to you in case you didn't. <laughs> so 18 verse 16. Then the men, so that's the Lord and the two angels, set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he, had, what he has promised to bring him. So, so here we go. These, these verses that I just read, that little section, is meant to inform how we read, understand, and apply the rest of 18 and all of chapter 19. So let's follow the train of thought of what just happened, what I just read, all right? Here, here's what happens. Verse 17, God says, should I hide what I'm going to do from Abraham? And the answer is no. God's, God's not going to hide it. Okay, so God's saying, I'm going to do something, and I'm not going to hide it from Abraham because it's important for Abraham to see what I'm going to do. And then he, he's going to tell us now, why is it important for Abraham to see what I'm going to do? Because Abraham's going to be a great nation, and all the nations are going to be blessed. So something God's going to do is going to be necessary for Abraham to know and to see and understand so that he, would, he will be blessed, and through him, the nations will be blessed. Tracking with me? Okay. So then he's going to tell us now what, what it is that we're 
looking for, that Abraham has to see for him to be blessed and for him to bless the nations. Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So you say it, okay, here's the thing I'm going to do, and what I'm going to do you need to tell your children about, and you need to tell your household about. I'm trying to work work our way through the logic here. You need to tell them that, make sure they understand that, so they understand what the way of the Lord is. So God's going to do something that he's calling the way of the Lord, that Abraham has to see him do, so that he'll be blessed and the nations will be blessed. And then he tells him what the way of the Lord is. It is to do, what's it say? Righteousness and justice. So the thing God's going to do is something that has to do with righteousness and justice. It's his way. And when Abraham sees it, he's supposed to command his kids, tell his kids about it, and then they're supposed to do it. They're supposed to, supposed to live it out. Does that make sense? You see the, the train of thought that's going on here. There's, there's this connection here in this passage, with what God is about to do and the way of the Lord, between what God is about to do and justice and righteousness. There's a connection there. And Abraham is supposed to stop, see what God is doing, see it as justice and righteousness, and then he's supposed to respond to that in two ways. There's two action verbs here. Command. He's supposed to command his children to do. He's supposed to teach his children, remind his kids to do justice and righteousness, and then he's supposed to do justice and righteousness. So those are his responses to what is supposed to be happening here. Now, I think it's good. Just to, I want to just pause for a moment and talk to moms and dads in the room. Because I think there's a, this is like, as I'm reading this this week, I'm going, this is parenting. What, what, are, what does the New Testament tell us to do as parents? I'm mean, supposed to tell our kids about the way of the Lord and then live it in front of them. We're supposed to show them what God is like by how we live what, what is God's justice? What is God's righteousness? What is the way of the Lord? And then we're supposed to tell them about it. So we're supposed to show and tell. And that's exactly what God's telling Abraham here. It's like, Abraham, I want you to watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you justice and righteousness. And then I want you to tell your kids about it. And then I want you to live in just that justice and righteousness. And that is the means by which you and your kids and all the nations are going to one day or today be blessed. So that's, that's what he's talking about. Now, as I was reading this this week, I was thinking, I don't know how much I really think about God's righteousness and justice. It's just not a phrase I often ponder. Usually it's more his love or his forgiveness or his mercy. But it seems like here that this is a pretty big deal to God, that Abraham knows God's justice and his righteousness. Now, these Words aren't that distinct. In the Hebrew, they're in the same word group, so they're not that different of words. Justice may have more to do a little bit with a legal statement, guilty or innocent. And righteousness may have more to do with just moral living. But at the end of the day, they both really mean the same thing. And, and, and the, the, the biblical way of defining justice or righteousness is that God always does what is right. God always does what is right, And he himself is the standard of what is right. So he always does what's right, and he's not looking to us to figure out what right is. He himself is the standard for what right is. So God is going to do stuff. Let's pull it all back together again. God is going to do stuff now from the end of the last verse I just read, from the end of verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 19, 
do stuff to show that he's righteous. Everything he does is going to be right. Everything he does is going to be just. And Abraham's supposed to watch that and go, okay, that's the way of the Lord. i got to tell my kids about that way, and I want to live that way. And I think the same is for us. We're going to look at it, and we're going to go, this is God's way. This is God's just and righteous way. And I want to tell our kids about it, and I want to live in the good of it. And when I do, God says, that's how you live in the blessings of God. There's blessings to be had when we walk in his way. So we're going to now is we're going to keep reading. Like I said, it's a lot of reading we got to do this morning. So buckle up. If you've got coffee, drink a little extra right now. If you need to stand up at some point because you're falling asleep, stand up. There's eight things, and we're going to try to move really quick through them. There's eight. You're going to pass it around? You got enough coffee in there for everybody? We're just going to pass it. Pass the coffee around. There are, I think there's eight things in these sections we're going to look at that tell us about the way of the Lord, or eight observations about what it looks like when God does justice and righteousness, and they're going to look different. This is, this is one of those things where, as I read, studied this, I thought, ah, this is really weird to preach. It's kind of hard to get your brain around this a little bit, so it's going to be a challenge. This isn't, this isn't, a, uh, this isn't smooth sailing. So you're, I hope you, don't, hope you don't feel disjointed in this, but you've got to stay engaged to see what God's doing because God is trying to create a, paint a picture of, of himself to us and to Abraham. So, so let's move on. Let's, let's begin now in verse 20. So we're just going to keep reading. And, uh, and we're going to figure out exactly what is justice and what is righteousness. So, verse 20. God just said he's going to, Abraham will get what he has promised through this. And then he says, then the Lord said. This is a total, do you see the change of topics? I feel it's almost bizarre, right? Verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children after his household, after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, it's like major left turn, because, or so it seems, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So he just got done finished talking about justice and righteousness and then what does God say? I'm going to take a little trip down to Sodom and Gomorrah because there's a mess going on down there. Big time sin. Or so I've been told. Which is kind of funny, isn't it? Like, like, like he doesn't know. I think he already knows. But I think he says that for a reason. He says that because he's trying to show Abraham something about justice and righteousness, which is don't make assumptions. Don't go on hearsay. If you're going to live in a just and righteous way, God is saying, first step is, when you're with others, make sure you don't go on hearsay. Find the facts out from the person. What happens when you live your life on hearsay? <laughs> Usually we end up with gossip, confusion, misunderstanding. And so he's saying, look, the, the way of righteousness and justice for God is don't go by hearsay. Actually go to the source and find out what's really going on. So that's number one. Number two, Renee is going to read verses 22 to 33 for us. And I want you to be looking as she reads those verses, 22 to the end of the chapter. I want you to look for, I see three more ways 
that we see righteousness and justice. I want to see if you see righteousness and justice as she reads them. So go ahead, Renee. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Don't you find Abraham annoying? <laughs> like, just cut to the ten. But Abraham's learning about God. Because at this point in redemptive history, I'm not so sure Abraham knows that God is righteous and just. And I think his questions are real. I don't think they're rhetorical. I think he's trying to find out, will God destroy the righteous and the wicked all in one felt swoop? Maybe he will. And so I think this conversation is drug out because we're supposed to enter into Abraham's heart and ask the question that Abraham's asking. Is God really righteous and just? What does it mean for God to be just and righteous? And so I think what we learn from here, number two, is that righteousness and justice does not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, right? Isn't that the conclusion? God's not going to just say, all right, I'm going I'm to annihilate everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous all at once, the sinners, uh, the ones that are wicked. Sorry, you ruined it for everybody else and wipe them all away. That's not God. That's not the way that God rolls. So I think Abraham and we need to tell our kids <laughs> that's not how God rolls. God does not just wipe out everyone, the good and the wicked, all at once. And then, I think another thing we see in this is that righteousness and justice flow from the character of God. And Abraham appeals to this, I think, but not fully knowing whether it's true about him in verse 25. He says, but far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, 
Far be that from you. It's almost like he's trying to persuade God. Like, that's really what you're like, right? You're really that way, right? Far be it for you. That, that's you, right? Like, he's really hoping that really is God, and that's how God's going to act. And, of course, we know that's how he acts. But Abraham's finding this out firsthand. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abraham is saying, I, I think I understand what, just, what it means to be just and what justice is, but I'm not so sure you do. And so with each uh, number getting lower, <laughs> from 50 down to 10, he realized, okay, God's just. God is just. So I, I, think, <laughs> I think Abraham receives that, but he receives it, and he keeps in mind that righteousness and justice ultimately depends on God. Ultimately, it is in God's hands. So I love the way he, he says Behold, I have undertaken, in verse 27, to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. I'm, I'm rubbish, literally rubbish and worthless. So he's appealing to God, come on, I, I know you're this way, I know you're just, and I know you're righteous, but just to make sure you know, I'm, I'm asking these questions and I'm realizing that, that I'm, a, I'm ashes, I'm, I'm dust. I'm, I'm down here, I, I want you to be just and righteous, but I'm not, is what he's saying. So I think a fourth thing we can see in this is that righteousness and justice ultimately depends on God. It belongs to God. And then at times we want God to do things the way we want God to do things. And Abraham's realizing, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come below that and let God be just and righteous the way that God chooses to be just and righteous. So now we turn to what God actually does. There's just a few things I see in there about justice and righteousness, but in chapter 19, now we're going to see exactly what it is that God is doing. Remember verse 17 of chapter 18? Verse 17 says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And the answer is no. Well, now God's about to do it. He's going to do it. And so we're going to now look at chapter 19. Elspeth's going to read verses 1 to 11, and I want you to have your antennas up for how does verses 1 through 11 of chapter 19 show us something about God's justice and righteousness? Does that make sense? All right, so Elspeth, go ahead and read. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, and they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men that, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance shut the, and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men reached out with their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. All right, so what do we see God doing? Now, he's doing it mostly via through the angels. But what is God doing? And then how do we connect that to justice and righteousness? What, what, is, what does God do? What's the first thing he does when Lot's outside? Lot's outside, there's an angry mob, and what do the angels do? They reach out, they grab him. It's not the first time we're going to see the angels grabbing a hold of Lot and pulling Lot back in the house. So that's God's doing. How does that show you justice or righteousness? What is God doing for Lot? Rescuing him. He's saving Lot from the angry mob. I guess he was too dumb to go back in on his own. I'm not sure. But he grabs and pulls him back in. Then what happens? What, what, is, what does God do next? He blinds them. Does that seem righteous and just? Simultaneously, as he blinds them, what is he also doing for Lot and his family? He's saving them simultaneously, right? He's protecting them. So in this case, justice and righteousness, because God always does what's right, that's his character, is to strike them blind and then to, as punishment, I'm sure, as consequence, and then to use that to protect Lot and his family. And I was thinking, you know, God could have made them lame, right? He could have just, none of you can walk. They all fall to the ground. He could have said, I'm just going to kill them all, kill them all, just have them all drop dead right there. But I think God chooses to make them blind, because he could have picked a hundred other things, as a symbol. I think it's supposed to be symbolic. Basically, as spiritually blind as you are, I'm going to have you, give you a physical experience, so maybe you'll catch a glimpse of how spiritually blind you are, making you physically blind. So he, so he blinds them. And of course, that doesn't slow them down, does it? It seems like they're still just, the sin that is in them is so enraged that they just keep trying. They, they won't give up. But we see God's righteousness there in punishment and in protection. In punishment and in protection. All right, so we're going to keep reading now. In for, pick up in verse 12. And again, as we're reading, look at what God does. And then let's talk about how that shows God's righteousness and justice. So go ahead. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were, to, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, 
Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. All right. What's God doing? Protecting, rescue, good. He's showing mercy. It says that specifically, doesn't it? Mercy, and it also says he's doing something else in verse 19. Kindness. So, so for God, righteousness and justice can be kindness and can be mercy, and, and God is doing specific things to express that, right? So he's, first of all, he's letting Lot in on the inside scoop that something bad's going to happen. God didn't have to do that, right? But God did. So God is executing righteousness and justice by letting Lot know what's going to happen. And then, even though for some reason Lot seems to be really slow on the uptake here, sons-in-laws aren't much better. They're just like, what are you, you're, just, you're just like making these weird suggestions. Like, what is this even about? But then when push comes to shove, even Lot's not on the move. And so what does God do? He prompts the angels to grab a hold of Lot, right? And, and pull him and his daughters away. Like, we've got to get out of here. And since you're not moving quick enough, let's go. And he grabs them to get them out of Dodge as fast as he can. And I, I love how it's verse 14. Get up, up, come on, let's get out of the place. Verse 15, up, come on, take your wife, your daughters, let's go. And then in verse 16, finally, he's seizing them because they're delaying. The word escape is in this little section five times. Come on, let's escape. Come on, let's escape. Come on, let's escape. It's almost like God wants us to get a picture of a God who will grab people by the arm and lead them away from his wrath so they can escape him. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what we've all experienced as Christians, right? As followers of Christ, what happened? You and I were dilly-dallying, right? Lethargic, ignoring warnings. And what does God do? He comes along and he grabs us by the arm. He says, no, up, let's go. And he takes us because he wants us to escape his wrath. And so that's what he's doing here for Lot and his family. He wants them to escape his wrath. And so he's grabbing them and he's pulling them along, lest they be swept away with the wicked. Now, it's interesting. What number did Lot end with, or did Abraham end with when he was trying to convince God to be just and righteous? Ten. And how many people are getting his, is it 12 or 10? I, I don't remember. I thought it was 10. 10. And how many now are actually righteous? Four. <laughs> So it's like God goes, uh, it's like, Abraham, you asked and you stopped at 10, but you know what? Even if the number goes lower than that, I'm going to have mercy on the righteous. Now, we're going to talk next week about Lot and why on earth or how can he be righteous in light of the stunt he just pulled, which was horrible. But in God's perspective, in this moment, he and his daughters and his wife are righteous, and so these four are going to get to escape. Obviously, the two sons-in-laws don't make it. They don't follow along, but the rest get out. God, God rescues them. This is his justice, and this is his righteousness, that he would save the four. And I think we need to ask the question, why did he even do that? 
Because that's God's justice and God's righteousness. God does what is right. And for God, it was right for him to rescue Lot and his family. So Lot concludes that you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But God's righteousness and justice also has a wrathful side, doesn't it? When you talk about the attributes of God, I don't know if you know this or not, but wrath would not exist if it were not for sin. God is only wrathful because of our sin. And so here we're going to see now the other side of God as he pours out his wrath. So who's going to read? Kaylin, you're going to read? We're going to pick up in verse 23. All the way to 38? Yeah, read it all. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let, him, let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lay with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So what does God do in verse 23 and on? He pours down fire, wrath from heaven to destroy the wicked. Evidently, he heard the outcry of their sin, and it was as bad as he had heard. And so he knows that sin must be punished, and so he pours down fire and sulfur down from heaven and burns up the entire city with everyone in it dead. Complete annihilation, except for Lot, his wife, and two kids. This is justice for God. This is righteousness. Sin must be punished. So if you're taking notes, a seventh thing would be that righteousness and justice looks like fire and sulfur. We're going to look more into the next, next week into the details of Sodom and Gomorrah and their sin and what happened. But for now, I just want you to consider 
the reality that all sin must be punished. His wrath will be poured out on the wicked that rebel against him in order for him to be just and in order for him to be righteous. For God, Lot's wife, looking backwards, was worth death. I don't know these things make you uncomfortable, but if we're going to get to know God of the Bible and not about God we create in our own mind, we need to realize that when she disobeyed and looked back, God thought righteousness and justice is for her to turn to a pillar of salt. And so that's what happens. And he thought that righteousness and justice was for Lot and his two daughters to continue to escape and to not die. And then we get to the horror of Lot's interaction with his daughters. And we go, what is God doing there? I mean, you think about the story of Sarah. God allows his daughters to get pregnant, right? Is that not the doing of God? So for God, justice and righteousness is for these two girls to have sons, for them to have children. And I think, as I read this, this is why I think all this fits together and this is the doing of God, it seems that there's a parallel between what Lot wanted to do to his daughters and then what his daughters do to him. And I think that these stories and this information is given to us to make that point. Lot was willing to use his two daughters to get what he wanted, and now his two daughters are using him to get what they want. I think there's a parallel. I think it shows us that Lot's sin didn't go unnoticed. Lot was going to let others take advantage of his two daughters sexually. Now his two daughters are taking advantage of him sexually. And now you may be thinking, well, what he was going to let the guys do to them was way worse. So this isn't really justice. But I think it is when we realize that their sons are going to be the beginning of the Moabites and the Ammonites who, as you keep reading through Scripture, will be two of the most horrible groups of people on the planet and will be a constant threat or defeating God's people. So in essence, Lot's name now is tarnished. Everyone's going to know now, oh, the Moabites, they came from Lot. And I think God, this is what God's doing, I'm, I'm just preaching what it says, justice and righteousness for God in this case is for this to happen through Lot to make a point for Lot. As the Moabites end up being the ones that Israel looks to and goes, oh, they have a king, we want a king. So the whole king thing, and we know what a mess that turns out to be when God says you don't want a king, that all begins because of the baby of one of Lot's daughters. And then the Ammonites are the same way. They will constantly be a threat in destroying God's people over and over again. So these are the pictures that we get here in this story that Abraham gets of God being just and righteous. And Abraham's job now is to tell his kids about this and tell them this is the way to walk with God. This is the God you're going to walk with. This is what it means to see God do justice and righteousness. He's preparing them for when things happen in their lives to go, oh, that's God. 
God's doing justice and righteousness. To not put God in such a small box that they define what God does that's righteous and not, but let God decide what is righteous and just or not. And so this story, these stories are back to back, I think, to show God's justice, to show God's righteousness, and to show God's mercy. And God wants Abraham and his kids and our kids to hear this as a way of experiencing blessing. There's blessing when we have the right perspective of God's justice and God's righteousness. Now we are on the other side of the cross, so we have an advantage as we look back on these stories. Because it does raise questions about how on earth was Lot righteous. And even last week, how is Sarah righteous? How is Abraham righteous before God when we know that they are all sinners? And we know from this side of the cross that all sin will be punished, right? It's going to be punished. And it's either punished in hell for eternity or the punishment lands on Christ on the cross. And those are the only options. And God's word is clear that when Jesus comes back the second time, he's coming to bring judgment and wrath. The first time was to bring forgiveness. Second time is to bring wrath and judgment. And so to make sense of all this, I think we have to look at Romans 3. It's going to go on the screen because I didn't tell you guys to bring your New Testament with you. and I don't know if you have it or not. But Romans 3 sheds light on all of this to help it make sense to us. Because it should trouble us that Lot and his family didn't get destroyed with the others. So here's, what, here's how Paul, how God tells Paul to understand this Old Testament story. And why anybody walked away unscathed. i got to jump into verse 21 because it's one of Paul's run-on sentences. And there's nowhere else for me to get in. So, here we go. You guys still awake? Alright, so this, this kind of ties it together for me. I feel, like this, I feel like what I'm about to read here, if you don't understand what, I, what this says, I don't think you could ever make sense of God doing anything kind to anyone in the Old Testament. Because you should see God do things that are kind in the Old Testament and go, that's not just or righteous because they're sinners. And so this makes sense of it. But now, and I want you to notice all the times that this passage talks about righteousness and justice. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all the Old Testament people, all the New Testament people, all of us today, everyone who's ever lived, fall short of the glory of God. We've sinned and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation, that's a wrath absorber, by his blood to be received by faith. Now here's where I really want to get us to. This was to show. So Jesus being put forth on the cross, bearing the wrath of God by his blood, this happened, this was to show God's righteousness. Why do we have to 
see God's righteousness? Why does God have to prove his righteousness? Why does God have to show his righteousness? Here's why God has to show his righteousness, because at the present time, he shows it at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So here we go, back up. This is supposed to show God's righteousness because, sorry, I skipped a line there, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's your Old Testament. So what is God doing? He's passing over Lot's sin. And God can't pass over sin and still be righteous and just. So you and I should read the story and go, ah, God, you don't seem very righteous and just here to let Lot, especially after what Lot tried to do to his two daughters. Why is he escaping? That's not just. That doesn't seem righteous, God. How can you pass over that? So here's the explanation. (laughs) Here's how God does it. Though God puts Jesus forth as a propitiation, the fire and the sulfur, if you will, fell on Christ as he hung on the cross so that this would show the righteousness of God because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, which is also the word for righteous, He might be just and righteous, the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Do you see what's going on? This is the explanation. This is really the definition for how God remains just and righteous and forgives you. Because you deserve hell forever. And that's where you should go. And the only way that God can let you escape that and still remain just is for somebody else to be punished in your place. And that's what Jesus did. So we declare God is just, God is righteous, because Jesus took punishment you deserve, because the wrath that should have come down on you went on Christ. And so the the story of Abraham points ahead as we see God showing forgiveness, we see, see God showing mercy, we see God showing wrath, but they don't always fit together right, do they? There's some confusion when you read the, the stories of, of Abraham that we read this morning and of Lot. But this makes sense of it. This makes sense of the justice and the righteousness of God. And so our, our response, I think, to this story is to say, okay, what is it that we, I think a par- there's a parental application, parents, that we communicate to our kids the justice and the righteousness of God so they understand that God is just and God is righteous, but there's wrath. And we explain that to them. We teach that to them. We make that a priority for them. And then we learn to live in the way of the Lord by taking the world around us and looking at the things that are going on and realize God is still acting just and righteous. But one day he will bring the final justice and he will bring the final righteousness when he comes to judge the entire earth. And so I want to just finish up by reading two little passages here from the New Testament that talk about what happens when Jesus returns. When the Son of Man, this is in Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into eternal fire prepared for evil, for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a real day that's really coming. And for some it will be joyful, and some it will be terrifying. First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians says this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He will come back in vengeance and he will also come back to be marveled at. So the question this morning for us is when he comes back for you, will you be a goat or a sheep? And will it be vengeance, or will you be marveling? you got to wrestle with that question. you got to wrestle with that. Do you know for certain that when he comes back, it's going to be for you to marvel, or is it going to be for him to get vengeance? And that is a reality that I think God wants us to consider this week. It'll be a glorious day when he returns, for those of us who love Jesus, Right? Can't wait for that day. Bring it on. I'm tired of sinning. I don't want to sin anymore. Bring it on. But there's also the reality that for others it'll be terrifying. Revelation says that when Jesus looks down on them, they're going to hide and wish rocks would crush them rather than face the Lamb of God. The irony of people running from a lamb but it will be real and it will be terrifying. It will be real and it will be glorious. And for those of us who love Jesus, we will be marveling and marveling and marveling. Let me pray. Then we're going to sing together. God, we come to certain places in your word and it stretches our minds as we try to understand how you do justice and righteousness. And we recognize that we are dust and ashes and you are righteous and you do justice. And so we ask you to help us as we wrestle with what we really believe about you, what we see you doing and how we process that, how it causes us to respond to you. God, we 
don't want a God who is created in our own image or one that we create in our own minds that makes us feel comfortable, you've, you've shown us who you are and we want to embrace all of who you are, the way that you tell us that you are, believing that you are good and that you are just and that you are righteous even when we don't understand your ways. Even when we read stories that raise questions in our hearts and can cause confusion even in our souls. We need you to help us that we would believe what is true about you whether it makes us uncomfortable or not. We recognize, God, there's things about you that are mysterious, that are beyond our puny little human minds. We're so limited and finite and you are so grand and glorious. You exist in ways that we don't understand. And so I ask that even this week as we seek to apply this passage to our hearts, as we wrestle with the things that we've read this morning, that we would have a clearer picture of who you are. God, a picture that maybe would cause some of us to fear you more than we have, to to fear you in a good way. And maybe for some of us, It'll cause us to fear you in a terrifying way, knowing that you're going to come back and execute vengeance. And so, Father, any, any here this morning who don't know you, I pray that you would pour your spirit down and rescue them. God, I pray you take them by the hand and, and pull them along like you did Lot and his daughters. God, be merciful. Be merciful to my friends in this room and save them. Help them to escape the wrath of God. Jesus, we are grateful and eternally grateful that you hung on the cross and absorbed the wrath of God for us so that we can have confidence that we will marvel at you when you come and not hide in fear. And God, I I pray the reality of that day would impact how we live today and tomorrow. God, that day is coming quickly and we will see you face to face. And God, I pray that that would change decisions we make, how we spend money, how we use our time, how we interact with lost people. God, may may the reality of your justice and your righteousness grip us Grip us in a way that sobers us so that we can repent and make changes where you lead us to make them. Help us, I pray. Help us. We we need mercy. And we thank you for your kindness to us. Speak to us, I pray. Even as we're singing pray that you'd speak to each one of us specifically that we would apply what we've heard this morning in a way that's appropriate. In Jesus' name, amen.